It's Friday the 13th of January, and this is your Capsule Economics Weekly Briefing. I'm Neil Shearing, Group Chief Economist. David's out this week, as I'm joined by Mark Williams, our Chief Asia Economist. Hi, Mark. Hi, Neil. Coming up, we'll be hearing from our US and Canada teams about the latest on the growth and policymaking fronts. But I wanted to start with China, where the sudden move away from zero COVID restrictions, as well as policy easing on other fronts, has global markets excited about a boost to growth as its economy reopens. Mark, this has obviously been a major shift and it's having a stark impact on activity in China. Can you talk us through what you're seeing on the ground? Well, in brief, we're seeing a much faster recovery in activity than we had expected. I mean, it's only really at the beginning of December that the zero COVID policy was abandoned and then COVID started to spread around that time very rapidly through the country. The result of that is that some quite credible estimates, 70, 80, in some places, 90% of people have already had COVID and those that have recovered are on the streets. So we've been tracking things like the number of people going on the subways in major cities across China in late December. That was lower than it was at the trough when Shanghai was in lockdown. And the number of people traveling in late December was under half of what would be normal. By early January, i.e. now, we're back to about 80% of normal. So we're not quite there yet, but the recovery in activity has been really strong. We see the same with people going back to their hometowns for Lunar New Year, which is on New Year's Day is January the 22nd this year. We're looking at about 50% of the normal number of journeys being made this far out from Lunar New Year, so depressed relative to the pre-pandemic norm. But that's substantially higher than we saw last year or actually the year before. So it's the best Lunar New Year in terms of travel volumes for three years. And I suspect that a lot of people are perhaps putting off journeys until they see the you know situation back home, they get better from COVID. And so I suspect that we'll see actually quite a big pickup in journeys closer to the time. So the short answer is things are getting back to normal a lot quicker than we would have thought. Yeah, we'll come on to what it means for the economy. It's really stark how a couple of weeks ago we were talking about a difficult reopening for China, bumpy path ahead. It looked like the healthcare system could buckle under the pressure of infections, rising infections. That doesn't seem to have been the case. Enormous pressure on the healthcare system, but hasn't buckled. And now we're seeing an increase in mobility and passenger traffic and so on and so forth and the economy rebounding. What, what, what do you think is behind that? Well, we have to be a little bit careful. We don't really know in great detail what's going on in the healthcare system. And anecdotal reports suggest it it is pretty bad. And most of our anecdotal reporting is coming from the major cities, Shanghai, Beijing, which are by far the best resourced parts of the the, uh, the Chinese healthcare system. So I suspect it is pretty bad, actually, but that's kind of hidden from us. And particularly as people migrate back to rural areas for Lunar New Year, that the much less well-staffed and resourced healthcare systems in those areas are really going to be in a great deal of, of strain. So we shouldn't underestimate the, the cost, the healthcare cost of, of all of this. But for those people who've caught COVID and hasn't left major symptoms, they've come through it. You know, they can now get back out on the, the streets. It's happened so quickly. I don't think we have a, a really a perfect explanation for quite how it has spread through the, the country quite so rapidly. I don't think we've seen anything quite so fast elsewhere. It, it feels like it's going kind to of pass through pretty much the whole population in the course of, of just a few weeks, whereas it took months in, in other parts of the country. But part of the answer is simply that the authorities gave up in early December. 
So most of the countries or all other countries that moved on from a zero COVID style policy did so gradually. If we look at the way that somewhere like Singapore did it or Taiwan did it, it was a gradual step back from restrictions in order to try to flatten the curve. In China, that didn't happen. They, they just, as, as, as they're saying in China, they just lay flat and, and got steamrolled by, by the wave of infections. This is, you know, very bad for the healthcare outcome, but for the economy, it has meant that it's come through remarkably quickly. Yeah, let's talk about the economic implications of all of this. We, we put a note out over the past week, reassessing our forecasts for 2023. Talk us through those forecast changes. Well, as I said, we had expected the uh, the disruption from the, the spread of COVID to last through much of the first quarter of this year, but actually it seems to have ended almost before the quarter began. So we're seeing a much quicker recovery in activity that's brought forward the recovery that we had expected by two or three months. On top of that, there's also signs of other policy shifts underway that the government is is lining up in a number of areas to try to support growth. Perhaps most notably, it seems to be walking back the three red lines in property. And this means I think that we're going to see a rapid return in confidence. Consumer confidence has been in the doldrums. We might well see a pickup in, in property sales. That's going to help the, the property sector as, as, as well. So by the second half of this year, the economy is going to be in a much stronger uh, position than we had previously thought was likely. So we've lifted our growth forecast for this year to 5.5% across the year as, as a whole on both the GDP measures as released by the government. And actually, in reality, we think growth is going to be around that kind of level. Previously, we thought the economy would only expand by about 2% this year, and the government would admit to growth of about 3%. So it's a pretty um, sharp rebound, but some context perhaps is, is useful for this. It's not quite, quite as strong as the rebound that we saw in China in 2020, uh, where China had a similar recovery in terms of domestic activity, but was also propelled by the strength of global demand for Chinese exports. That has been going into reverse recently. So although on the domestic front, everything will be economically going very well for China over the next few months, it is still facing this headwind from a weaker global economy. And that means that the recovery this time won't be quite as strong as the one we saw in 2020. Yes. Let's talk about the consequences for the rest of the world. We've pushed up our forecasts for China's economic growth this year. Really, that just pulls forward activity from 2024, though. So we have a faster rebound in 2023, slower growth in 2024. But clearly, the world's second largest economy. This has implications for the rest of the world. What, how, do you, how do you see that playing out? Well, the sorts of activity that are going to be recovering very strongly over the next few months are primarily in the service sector. So people are going to be out to, going out to restaurants, they're going out to shopping centers, they're maybe going to hotels. These are parts of China's economy that are not at all import intensive. They don't really benefit the rest of the world through the trade channel. So a lot of the activity won't really benefit the rest of us. One area where it will do is through tourism. We're likely to see a really big increase in the number of people traveling out of China over the next few weeks, really. I think that the rebound of tourism come quite quickly and so tourist destinations all around the world are likely to see a big increase in Chinese tourists. The major constraint there will be in terms of flight capacity. So as, as, as quickly as airlines are able to get capacity back, I think that tourism will rebound. The other area where China's rebound will, I think, have a palpable impact on the rest of the world is through what it does to commodity demand. So 
more people traveling around China, more fuel demand, that's likely to lead to higher global oil prices than would otherwise have been the case. And a bit of a recovery in the property sector uh, will also put some upward pressure on industrial metals prices. So the impact of that for people outside China very much depends on whether you're a commodity consumer or a commodity producer. So consumers of oil, most of us will have slightly more expensive oil, but this is good, obviously, for the commodity producing parts of the world. And for central banks around the world, which have been hoping to see big drop-offs in inflation, well, this is maybe one thing that will prevent those drop-offs in inflation being quite as sharp as might otherwise have been the case. What about the longer-term outlook for China? We've spoken in the past about the structural problems at the heart of China's economy, too much savings, too much investment, too much centralization in terms of the allocation of resource in China's economy and how that manifests itself in weaker productivity growth, the demographics are ugly too. To what extent have any of those problems gone away or got worse? What are we, once we're through this reopening rebound, what's China's economy going to look like, do you think, in the, in the kind of medium term? Well, I think it's hard to make the case that the medium term outlook has noticeably improved really over the past few months. The leadership has removed some of the significant breaks on near-term growth, most notably zero COVID, but also the relaxation of the three red lines on the property sector. So that's going to allow a, a near-term rebound. But the property sector still faces major structural challenges. The biggest one, the fundamental one really, being that China's population is no longer growing. Urbanization has slowed to a, a trickle and it just doesn't need to be building ever more houses every year and the developers have have levered up as though that were the case. So that problem hasn't been solved. And that is just a one example, really, of the broader issue of China's growth having been so much driven by investment over the past few decades, and China now having already built out a lot of uh, the capacity that it's likely to need over the next few decades, whether that's in industry, in the property sector, or in infrastructure. So the medium-term outlook, I don't think, has improved on that front. And I think you could make a pretty strong case that in some ways it's worsened. The way that the leadership mismanaged zero COVID didn't take advantage of, of the period that zero COVID gave China to vaccinate the most vulnerable people, I think really undercuts the argument that the leadership in China is very strategic and is always thinking about the long game rather than being reactive as some governments elsewhere are some way, sometimes characterized as big. But ultimately, zero COVID just collapsed and they had not prepared for the eventuality that infections would, would spread. This was foreseeable. Many people warned that it was likely to happen and said that the vaccination rate of the elderly should be increased, but almost nothing was done until right at the moment that it all fell apart. This is a signature policy of Xi Jinping, something that he has owned. So it shouldn't really give us any great confidence about his other signature policies, whether that's in terms of boosting self-sufficiency or more broadly, boosting China's growth. So a faster than expected turnaround, but structurally not much has changed. Yes, I think that's right. The, the outlook right now is looking a lot better. I think 2023 will be characterized by a bit of euphoria really in some places in, in China emerging from zero COVID. But as the year goes on, these long-term problems are, are going to come back into focus. They haven't gone away. That was Mark Williams on China's rebound. Look out for our coverage in the coming week of the official Q4 GDP data release. 
where we'll be looking at how the economy responded to the fundamental break with the zero COVID regime in December. Now, even as China reopens, the central bank war on inflation continues, and the past week's big data release was the US December CPI numbers. As we'd forecast, the headline numbers showed more signs of easing, but the core CPI number did tick up. Stephen Brown, who leads our Canada coverage, talked with our senior US economist Andrew Hunter about the data release and about inflation and policy differences on either side of the US-Canada border. Stephen starts by asking Andrew if the US core inflation story remains a concern. I guess we're not too worried by the slightly stronger rise in core prices in December. I think I still think there's very clear evidence now that core inflation is on a downward trend, right? If you look at the core CPI index in three-month annualized terms, it's slowed to only about 3% now, and that's from a peak of nearly 8% in the middle of last year. So I think, you know, Clearly, there's already been significant progress, and we do think it's going to continue falling from here. I think if we look at so core goods, first of all, you're right that the the core goods continued to decline in price in December, but that was really just concentrated in vehicles, used and new vehicle prices both falling on the month. Uh, we had some other categories of goods price rebound a little bit. But I still think the general trend there has got to be downwards. If you look at the wider evidence, you know, that we've had the impact of the the stronger dollar pushing down import prices. You've had a collapse in global shipping costs over the past year or so. And yes, the survey, certainly on the goods side, they're very clearly pointing to, I guess, not just disinflation, but further deflation to come. So I'd be pretty confident that that trend's going to continue. With services, yeah, it's a bit more of a nuanced picture, I guess. And yeah, generally speaking, core services inflation is still holding up a bit better. A good part of that strength, though, in, in December, in terms of the, the monthly rise in core services prices that we saw, that was mostly due to a slightly stronger rise in rental prices. So the, the, the two big rent in indices that feed into the core CPI both rose by 0.8% on the month, which is pretty strong. But I think there it's it's just important to note that we do now have a you know pretty widespread evidence that, that rent inflation is going to start falling pretty sharply soon. If you look at the various private sector measures of newly signed rental contracts, they have already slowed dramatically and, and they do seem to have a leading relationship with the official CPI rent data. So, you know, while CPI rent inflation currently is still very strong, I think it is going to start slowing pretty sharply before too long. And that's going to be a big factor dragging overall core inflation lower. What about yeah. the, the what about the picture in Canada? I know sort of similar core inflation has come off a bit, but probably still a bit too high for comfort, right? Yeah, that's right. It's sort of similar rates at the moment. We haven't had the December report next week. We've got that to look forward to and the week that's coming up. But the rent uh, topic is an interesting one and quite a bit of difference between the two countries. So even within the US, it feels like we had this idea that people would have to renew at higher rents and therefore rent inflation would continue to be boosting the headline rate for some time. And that actually seems to be what we've been seeing in Canada. So one of the, there was a bit of an upside surprise to inflation in November, and it was partly because rental growth was quite strong. And it's 
quite tricky if you look at the actual data. So rent control was very common in Canada. It's around 80%, if not higher, of apartments are subject to rent controls. Rent increases should be limited to about 2%. Instead, we've got CPI rent inflation of almost 6%. So you have to ask, well, how is that possible? And it just seems to be uh, during the reopening, we had so many people moving within the country and this big surge in immigration, which rebounded following the pandemic, that we had all these people signing new rent agreements, you know, moving towns again, moving to where the jobs are. And that, that act has been inflationary in itself because they've obviously had to agree to higher rents you know, to, to make those relocations. So are we, not, are we not seeing that in the US though? Or is it just, you know, I think some of the sort of top academic economists were saying that was going to keep rent inflation high in 2023. Whereas we've been making the other point that actually rent inflation is is coming down in the US at least, right? Yeah, there, so there has been, you know, a, a, a level of concern, certainly something the Fed's been raising over the past few months, this idea that, you know, although rent inflation for newly signed leases is now slowing, there's potentially still this big period of sort of catch up as you get the you know remaining housing stock leases coming up for renewal in this new higher rent environment so you, you potentially get this prolonged period of high rent inflation but i think you know based on what we're seeing in these various indices and the things that it measures that do have a, a pretty good leading relationship with the the cpi rent data it, it looks like those concerns are mostly unfounded. It, there's one chart in particular we, we've got of a series that was recently published by researchers at the, I think it was the Cleveland Fed in conjunction with the BLS. And they published a series of new rental growth going back a good 20 years. And it does have, you know, really quite a solid relationship with the CPI rents data. And again, it, it suggests CPI rent should start slowing within a matter of months. So unless there's, you know, some reason to expect a, a sort of sudden structural break there. I, I think that's what's going to happen. I guess one other interesting contrast, I was wondering, one of the big issues with the US rent data is that the way the BLS calculate it is sort of almost deliberately designed to be lagging in that. So essentially they have this sample of rental units, but they essentially only use data from one sixth of that sample each month. So in other words, it, if you have supposing a one-off shock to rents in the country, it actually takes a full six months for that to feed through into the, the rent inflation data. Is it similar in Canada, Canada, do you know, in terms of the methodology? Uh, it's a tricky one because they changed the methodology in 2018. So even looking at the past doesn't give us much of a guide because we had all these pandemic disruptions. It's essentially sampled in a similar way, though, off the labor force survey, although I'm not too sure if they're taking a, a six-month average of those. Certainly what we see, you know, you've got that very interesting chart that you show showing those leading indicators for rents. When I look at the private sector rent measures for Canada and compare them to the official CPI rent series there, there isn't really a leading relationship. They just move together. So it doesn't seem to be the case. But really the big issue in Canada is just that we haven't seen any signs of a slowdown in rent yet. As I mentioned, you know, we've had this big surge in immigration. The labor market is still very strong. And the annual rents of these private sector measures continue to increase into November. So what we really need to see is, is these rates come down again. Although it could still be the case that CPI rents rental inflation does fall if we see a 
you know, lower share of new rental contracts signed now that people have relocated, which is probably a good segue actually to start talking about the labor market a bit more, because obviously the most recent labor market data in both countries was, was pretty solid, even more so in Canada than the US, but probably some weaker signs beneath the service, at least in the US, right? Yeah. So I guess a lot of people have been sort of drawing, you know, in terms of people worried about whether or not there's going to be a US recession. A lot of people have been drawing comfort from the fact that payroll employment growth is still pretty strong. So of course, we we had the December employment report just recently, which showed payrolls continuing to rise strongly more than 200,000 on the month. So yeah, at, at face value, that's consistent with labor market conditions historically strong and certainly not with the idea that there is about to be a recession. But I think it's with the labor market, it's important to sort of distinguish between things like just the headline employment measures, which are only really coincident indicators and other indicators which have more sort of forward-looking leading properties. And, and generally, if you look at those, the, the picture is actually already much weaker. So we, we put out a note on the US service this week highlighting a few of those. In particular, temporary help employment has been falling in the US for about six months now. And that's something that's tended to be a pretty good leading indicator of sort of overall trends in employment growth and again, is consistent with, with a sharp slowdown in employment growth over the coming months. Hours worked is another one that's that's been weakening. Average weekly hours has, has been trending lower for several months now. And again, that's something that we tend to see, you know, in the run-up to downturns in the labor market and broader economies. So, yeah, I guess, you know, when added to the more general signs we're seeing in the, you know, economic and financial market data suggesting that recession risks in the US are are really now very high, um, I think, you know, we're still pretty confident in the view that there is going to be a, a more severe downturn in the labor market soon. And and that's something that, that again, will, will help drag core inflation lower still. I, as you mentioned, I, I do think it's quite interesting the, the similarities between the US and Canada, though, in, in that labor market picture in terms of, you know, headline numbers looking pretty strong, but weakness under the surface, right? Yeah, it's it's been similar. But I think we would certainly say that Canada still seems to be holding up a bit. So we, we have had some weakness on, in temporary employment, but some of that does seem to be this, a bit of statistical mirage related to temporary employment over over the summer, which is still being picked up in the six month averages. And then the other big difference between the two countries is this um, full time employment. So that has been weakening in the US, right? But it's actually continued to strengthen and driven most of the gains in Canada. So even though we have seen average hours worked for in Canada as well, so maybe you could make the case that sort of demand is weakening from that basis, it still was quite surprising that we're seeing full time employment rise so strongly. And even the, the increase in December specifically, Canada's with over 100,000, which for a country with one tenth of the population of the US is, is obviously a lot stronger proportionately compared to the, the rise in the US with a little over 200,000. So some differences are there, but I guess one of, the, one of the key things we've sort of been discussing amongst the team this week is this idea that maybe the headline employment numbers aren't going to be that important now. We need to, to take account this potential labor hoarding into effect and really do focus on those on those average hours works figures to get a sense of where the economy might be going. One thing that did jump out in the US labor market data was wage growth, right? Which was weaker than everyone expected. So that's likely to have a fairly sizable bearing on the policy outlook, is it? Yeah, wage growth is definitely, you know, unsurprisingly, one of the big things the Fed's focusing on now, you know, going back to this idea that, you know, they're 
still worried about the fact that that sort of underlying core services inflation is is proving relatively resilient and that's you know for the most part most closely tied to what's going on in the labor market but yeah as you said average earlier we had the data we had in the employment report last week have now shown signs of softening i think again the fed won't necessarily be taking too much comfort for that there's you know it's been quite a volatile series over the past couple of years in particular there's also some concerns about possible compositional distortions because it you know it's not a measure that controls for that kind of thing the big one in the US is going to be the employment cost index which is a quarterly series only but we get the Q4 data at the end of the month actually just before the the Fed will be meeting to to make its its next policy decision. So it looks like that's going to be a a key factor, sort of swaying the the near term policy outlook. But you know, based on what we're seeing in the labor market data more generally, in terms of you know signs of easing slack and the the job openings, job quits data, things like that, I still think there's there's a pretty good chance that we'll see some slowdown in in wage growth in that employment cost index measure starting to feed through and yeah again if if we're right that the labor market is headed for a more serious downturn then then clearly wage growth is is only going to follow it lower yeah certainly there's some convincing reasons but the fed is still presenting a very hawkish message right it doesn't seem to want to shift its view materially anytime soon yeah, so it looks like the the pace of tightening is probably going to slow again. The meeting at the end of this month, it, it looks like they're probably closing in on a 25 basis point hike. But yeah, as you say, they're they're not really entertaining any talk of, you know, pausing rate, rate hikes, let alone talking about looser policy just yet. I think to some extent, you know, that's sort of understandable. It makes tactical sense if they they don't want to start talking about you know easing up and and the possibility of looser policy until they're absolutely sure that you know the inflation problem really has been you know to a large extent solved and and inflation is headed sustainably back to their target i think at the moment you know clearly they're not yet confident enough to to be able to make that decision so yeah looks like they're going to keep hiking rates over the next couple of meetings we think and then and then hold them for a while um but over the course of this year, if we're right that a recession is on the way, we're going to get a period of labor market weakness, slowing wage growth on top of the, the, the pretty clear downward trend in core inflation that's already underway and, and we think is, is going to continue. I, I still think there's a good chance the Fed will be cutting rates again a lot sooner than they're currently suggesting. We're, we're still expecting cuts to begin before the end of this year. The short term is, is, it's an interesting contrast with the Bank of Canada, really. You sort of mentioned that it makes tactical sense to continue to present this hawkish message. But when we look at the inflation data, the employment data, even the activity data, it's broadly similar in both Canada and the US. But the Bank of Canada has definitely presented a lot more of a dovish message, telling us it may have already finished its hiking cycle. At one point, markets were, were already pricing in the idea that December marked the last interest rate hike. That has switched now given some of the most recent data. But it, I just, I do wonder why, why the two central banks are, are taking this different approach. I mean, it might just be that, you know, we have much higher house prices, greater financial risks, arguably in Canada, but maybe the Bank of Canada is a bit more 
attuned to those downside risks in a downside scenario in which the central banks hike too much. Or maybe it's just that the Fed will has an eye on its role as the gatekeeper of global financial conditions. So really, its actions are a lot more important in terms of what they mean for global markets than, than what the Bank of Canada is doing. And that's it for this episode. You'll find all of our coverage on China's reopening, Fed and Bank of Canada policymaking, and much, much more on our website, capsuleconomics.com. And don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts. But until next week, goodbye.